Welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. My name is Lachlan Miller. I'm a Bible college graduate from SNBC, a pastor at Nawi Baptist Church, and for those reasons, I've very kindly been given the title of expert on this podcast. Now, the premise of our show is that each week we read and discuss a passage of the Bible, getting the three different perspectives of an expert, a pastor's kid, and a new Christian. However, you've actually caught us between seasons right now. We've just finished 18 episodes on the book of Genesis, and we're currently preparing for our next season, which is going to be on the book of Acts. However, while we are preparing, we thought it would be really helpful to provide some supplementary material for all of our listeners. And so... Two kind of central beliefs of the hosts of this show is that God exists and that the Bible is God's word. So we thought these were two ideas worth defending. So in this episode, I'm going to defend the idea that God exists and provide some evidence for that. And then in a future episode, I'm going to defend the idea that the Bible is God's word to us. So let's jump into this episode all about whether God exists. 30 years ago, a man named Alvin Plantinga gave a lecture where he presented 26 arguments for God's existence. Today, we're actually going to cover five, which is two scientific, one philosophical, one historical, and one personal argument. Now, throughout the course of the last two seasons of our podcast, we've actually covered some of these arguments. However, I thought it was worth having them all in one spot. And this is actually where I want to quickly pause and recommend this book, Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig. Aside from Plantinga, Craig is probably the most influential evangelist and apologist alive today. His book, Reasonable Faith, is legitimately the standard for all conversations about arguments for God's existence. Now, it can actually be quite an intimidating read, but thankfully he has another book, which is called On Guard, which is much simpler than Reasonable Faith, and I highly recommend getting yourself a copy of On Guard and reading it through with a group of friends. So, let's begin, and as we do, I wanted to start with a quote from another Christian I'm a really big fan of, Professor John Lennox, who says that faith is a response to evidence, not a rejoicing in the absence of evidence. And so my prayer is as I go through these five arguments for God's existence, that we all may be strengthened in our faith today. So evidence number one, the Kalam cosmological argument. The Kalam cosmological argument was brought into the spotlight by William Lane Craig himself and has been hugely influential in the academic world. The Cambridge Companion to Atheism says that more articles have been published about the Kalam argument than have been published about any other philosophical argument for God's existence. Thankfully, this argument is also very simple, and it goes as follows. Premise 1. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Premise 2. The universe began to exist. Conclusion. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Big whoop, I hear some of you say, the universe has a cause. Except we can then do some simple deductions to figure out the characteristics of this cause, where we discover that the cause must be uncaused, timeless, immaterial, and personal. But we'll get there. Let's start from the beginning. With premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Now, this is just a foundational scientific fact It is also the unanimous consensus of every human's lived experience. 
However, I once met a guy called Aiden at Sydney University who had some interesting responses to this premise. Now, I met Aiden while I was doing cold contact evangelism, which is when you simply walk up to someone, a stranger, and invite them into a conversation about Jesus. So on this day, I walked up to this guy and invited him to have a conversation about Jesus. His initial response was interesting. It was, well, actually, I study science, and so I don't believe in God. To which I got to respond, I also study science, and I do believe in God. The shocked look on his face was priceless, and he actually seemed interested and intrigued, so invited me to have a conversation about God with him. I presented to him the Kalam cosmological argument, and to this first premise, Aidan said that while it is everyone's lived experience that everything that begins to exist has a cause, that couldn't apply to the universe itself. Now, unfortunately for Aidan, this commits the taxi cab fallacy, which was named by 19th century atheist philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer. Arthur Schopenhauer says that you cannot demand that everything has a cause, but then suddenly exclude the universe for no apparent reason, just as you would a taxi once you reach your destination. Let's, let's do a thought experiment for a moment. Let's say we're walking out in the Australian bush, which is actually pretty close to where we record this podcast, and we find a soccer ball lying on the ground. Now, it would be pretty dumb of me to say we don't need to explain how it got there. Of course we need to explain how the soccer ball got there. Now, imagine that that soccer ball was the size of a large boulder. We still have to explain what caused it to be there. Now, imagine that soccer ball was the size of a house. It still needs an explanation. Imagine it was the size of a planet. You still need to explain what caused it to be there. Now, finally, imagine the soccer ball was the size of the universe. You still need to explain what caused it to be there. You can't just dismiss a metaphysical principle that governs all of reality as if it was a taxi just because you've now reached the size of the universe. Now, Aiden initially seemed pretty dejected by my response, but then I saw a gleam enter his eyes and he completely changed tact and he responded, hey, wouldn't this argument mean that your God needs a cause? Now, unfortunately for Aiden, that is not at all what the first premise implies. You see, the first premise only applies to things that begin to exist, which is not a characteristic of God. He is eternal and therefore does not have a cause. In fact, this premise also wouldn't apply to the universe if the universe hadn't have begun to exist. And so, Aiden was forced to concede that premise one was and is really, really solid. Unfortunately, he then said he needed to go to class, and so I didn't get to explain the rest of this argument to him. But hopefully you were still listening, and so I'm going to dive now into premise two, which is that the universe began to exist. Now, if the universe didn't have a beginning, if it didn't begin to exist, then it would be infinitely old. However, for an actual infinite number of things to exist actually breaks all the rules of logic. Imagine if you created a Spotify playlist and you put an infinite amount of podcasts onto this playlist. But then our podcast releases a new episode. Even though the playlist is already full and already of an infinite size, you could always fit more episodes into the playlist. Now, let's say you've reached the point where you've listened to half of the episodes on this infinite playlist. You've actually listened to an infinite amount of podcasts and you still have an infinite amount of podcasts left to go. Or 
let's say you choose to delete half the podcast from the playlist because they no longer interest you. Hopefully ours is not one of the ones being deleted. Even though you've deleted half of the podcast, you still will have an infinite amount of content to listen to. You see, the number infinity doesn't make sense when applied to real practical situations. Therefore, the realm of mathematics informs us that the universe cannot be infinitely old. Therefore, it must have had a start point. We can also turn to two other scientific arguments that show that the universe cannot be infinitely old and therefore must have had a beginning. First is the fact that the universe is expanding. This was predicted by Einstein and confirmed by Alexander Friedman and George Lemaire. And since the universe is expanding, you can actually trace that back in time to a point where everything was very, very close together. And while this happened a very, very long time ago, it did not happen infinitely long ago. This is actually the origins or the explanation of the Big Bang Theory, which is still to this day the best and most well-accepted cosmological model that we have. The second scientific thing that we should point out here is that the second law of thermodynamics states that everything is striving to reach a point of equilibrium. That is, at one point in time, the universe will eventually hit a point where everything is perfectly spread out. But if the universe was infinitely old, then we should already be in this state of equilibrium. But we're not. And so therefore, science teaches us clearly that the universe had a beginning, which leads to our conclusion that if the universe had a beginning, then it must have had a cause. Think about that for a moment. The universe can't have begun to exist without a cause, and it definitely, definitely had a beginning. Therefore, it was caused by something. But does this have to be God? Well, whatever this cause is, it must be uncaused. That is, it must be eternal. Because we've already seen from mathematics that we can't just have an infinite regress of causes. We need a first cause. This first cause must also be immaterial because all matter and energy came into existence with the universe. And it existed before the universe. It must also be spaceless and timeless because likewise it existed before all of space and time. However, all of these characteristics leave us with a significant problem because if the cause has always existed, then the effect it creates should have also always existed as well. It's like if this room that I'm sitting in right now was full of gas and the cause of it lighting on fire was a spark. If the spark has always existed, then the room should have always been on fire. So our timeless, uncaused cause had to be capable of making a decision to light the spark. A personal agent is literally the only solution which allows a timeless, uncaused cause to create a temporal effect such as our universe. And so, the Kalam cosmological argument shows that the universe was caused by something that is uncaused, timeless, immaterial, and personal, and that sounds an awful lot like God to me. Argument number two, the fine-tuning argument. Our second scientific argument is the fine-tuning argument, which has been around since the very beginning of science itself. You see, the very first scientists believed in the God of the Bible because when they looked at the world around them, they realized how fine-tuned it was for human life. 
Now, what do I mean when I say finely tuned? I remember learning to play guitar in year seven. And you know how you can tighten and loosen the strings with the knob at the end of the guitar? And if you don't get the exact right tightness, the note you play will either be sharp or flat. The universe is a bit like that. If some things weren't exactly right, then living things like us could not exist in this universe. Now, this fine-tuning is a scientific fact, and it was either designed that way or it was a total fluke. Those are our two options, design or fluke. Now, let's look at why it probably wasn't a fluke. Now, this is where I get to be a little excited and pull out my scientific background. You see, I studied physics at university, and there I learned that there are four forces that hold the universe together. These four forces are the strong force, which is the force that holds atoms together, the electromagnetic force, which is, you know, all things electricity and magnetism, the weak force, which causes things to decay, and then gravity, which pulls everything together. Now, these forces have to be very carefully balanced. And a physicist named Paul Davies discovered that if this balance was different, but even the smallest of margins, then life couldn't exist. For example, when a star is forming, the strong force and the electromagnetic force need to be very carefully balanced. However, if either force was 10 to the power of minus 16 stronger or weaker, then the star would collapse. Now, what do I mean when I said 10 to the power of minus 16? Well, that is a zero followed by a decimal place, followed by 16 more zeros, followed by a one. That is a tiny, tiny number. And if these forces were different by even that amount, then stars could not exist. What's even crazier is if the electromagnetic force was bigger by 10 to the power of minus 40, then only large stars could exist. And if gravity was bigger by 10 to the power of minus 40, then only small stars could exist. And life needs both big and small stars to exist in order to produce the very elements that we are made of. And so physics tells us that the forces which control everything around us in this universe, are perfectly fine-tuned for life. But what does biology tell us, for instance? Well, you are made up of DNA. You have DNA. It's what makes you, you. This DNA is made up of proteins, and proteins is made up of amino acids. Now, these amino acids need to be in the exact right order, like a word, in order to make the protein work, in order to make the DNA work. Now, let's just say you have all the right amino acids in a jar in order to make a protein. And you just, you're shaking the jar and somehow you know that they're going to align. The odds of them aligning in an order that makes the protein functionable is 1 in 10 to the power of 130. And so that's just the odds of them aligning properly so it can work. Now, the odds of then that protein aligning correctly into the DNA structure so that the living organism could work at even the most basic level is then a chance of 1 in 10 to the power of 40,000. Now, for those of you on YouTube, I thought I would show you what that number looks like. So here it is. For those of you not on YouTube, there are an incredible number of zeros on the screen right now. I legitimately crashed my computer multiple times trying to copy that number into PowerPoint. So the odds of life existing on Earth 
is basically impossible. Now, so you understand how big some of these numbers are, modern science says that the universe is 10 to the power of 18 seconds old. That is nothing compared to the 10 to the power of 40,000 we've just looked at. Or modern science says that the entire observable universe contains approximately 10 to the power of 80 atoms. It is more likely to find a randomly selected atom in the entire universe than it is that life developed by itself on our planet. A man called Anthony Flew, who was one of the greatest scientists of the last 100 years, after being an atheist for most of his life, began to believe in God because of facts such as these. And these aren't even the most impressive numbers that science has to offer. A man named Roger Penrose calculated the odds of a low entropy universe such as ours even existing. And that is 1 in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. That's a power of a power and well beyond any number that you or I could ever imagine. You could spend the rest of your life writing out the biggest number you know on a single tiny atom, and then we could take that number and put it on every atom in the entire observable universe, and you still wouldn't come close to this number. We can see that the existence of intelligence life rests upon the edge of the sharpest knife, requiring fine-tuning that is basically incomprehensible and actually totally incalculable. The Christian understanding of God as creator who custom-built the universe for intelligent life seems a much more logical option to me than the view that the universe is purely a product of chance. Evidence number three, the moral argument. We now move from the realm of the scientific into the realm of the purely philosophical and begin to ponder the topic of objective morality. Here is the moral argument as William Lane Craig presents it. Premise one, objective morality exists. Premise two, God is the only possible basis for objective morality. Conclusion, therefore God exists. Now, objective morality is the idea that there are universal right and wrongs which exist independent of what people believe and think and act. For example, the Holocaust was definitely wrong even though the Nazis who carried it out thought they were doing the right thing. The alternate view from objective morality is subjective morality, which says that we shouldn't judge the actions of other cultures because there are no true morals and the morals that we do have are based purely on social acceptability. Now, while some people today do hold to subjective morality, it is my experience that belief in an objective morality is innate in almost all human beings. To go a little dark for a moment, all you have to do is ask what someone thinks about rape, about murder, about child abuse, and they will have a near impossible time defending while these things are not moral atrocities and instead are just socially unacceptable. Now, what I love about this moral argument is you can often prove it just by quoting from famous atheists. 
So let's begin with a quote from Sam Harris, who is a very famous atheist. And he says that without objective morality, it is impossible to condemn practices like compulsory veiling, genital excision, bride burning, forced marriage, and the other cheerful products of alternative morality found elsewhere in the world. However, belief in objective morality is useless if you have nothing objective to base it on, which is where the concept of God comes in. Because for something to be objective, it must be based on something that is unchanging and eternally consistent. Nothing about human society or opinions is objective in this way. However, God is. In fact, in the opinion of most most atheists, without God, humans are just another animal. And animals have no moral obligations. When a lion kills a zebra, that is not murder. When a shark forcibly copulates with another shark, that is not rape because there is no moral dimensions to these actions in animals. Let me quote from Richard Dawkins, who says that in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, there is no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. I'll quote one more atheist for us, ethicist Peter Singer who says that we can no longer base our ethics on the idea that human beings are a special form of creation made in the image of God. So why should we believe that the mere fact that being a member of the species Homo sapiens endows its life with some unique, almost infinite value? In other words, the only way to argue for the unique and almost infinite value of a human life is to believe that we are created in God's image. Without this belief, humans are just another animal, and animals have no moral obligations whatsoever. Now, it astounds me how often this argument is misunderstood. So to avoid any misunderstandings, let me be clear. This argument has got nothing to do with belief in God. I'm not saying that in order to be a moral person, you must believe in God. Instead, what I'm saying is that God is the only possible viable philosophical foundation for an objective system of ethics. You can live a great ethical life without belief in God. However, without God, you have no moral basis for that good life. And so to sum up this argument, if objective morality exists, if there are things that really are wrong and really are right, which most people accept, then God as the only possible objective, unchanging, consistent basis for such a system must also exist. Evidence number four, the resurrection argument. Now let's turn to a historical argument and the first of our arguments to really narrow down onto the Christian God. Now virtually all modern scholars of antiquity agree that Jesus Christ was a real historical figure who lived 2,000 years ago. As a Christian, I also believe that after his death on the cross, Jesus actually rose from the dead, which if true, would constitute a divine miracle and therefore would be a piece of evidence for God's existence. But can we prove that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, there are three facts that everyone agrees on. Whether you're an atheist, agnostic, Jewish or Christian, everyone agrees on these three facts. Fact number one, Jesus was killed via crucifixion. Whether we turn to the Jewish historian Josephus, the Jewish law document known as the Talmud, the pagan philosopher Mara Serapion, 
the Roman historian Tacitus, or the nine different authors of the New Testament, we see total agreement that Jesus was crucified. Fact number two, Jesus's tomb was found empty shortly after his death. Now, this one is really easy because even the biggest objectors to Christianity, which was the Jews and the Romans in the first century, admit that the tomb was empty. They wanted to shut down Christianity and the easiest way to do so was to simply parade the body of Jesus around. But they couldn't because the tomb really was empty. And then fact number three, Jesus's followers claimed to have seen a resurrected Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 5 to 8 states this, Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. This is actually one of the oldest Christian documents, and we see that believing in a resurrected Jesus was the very foundation of their belief. So what options are there to account for our three facts? I'm going to go through five different options here. Option number one, the apparent death theory. One explanation, championed by Carl Venturini, proposes that Jesus did not actually die on the cross, but only fainted, and then later awoke in the tomb, escaped, and then convinced his disciples he had risen from the dead. Now, this theory does account for the empty tomb of Jesus, and it does account for the appearances of Jesus. However, it doesn't fit our very first fact. Because while we all agree that Jesus was crucified, we then also have to believe that he somehow survived it. The Romans were professional executioners who whipped and beat Jesus brutally to the point of collapse. They then drove heavy iron nails through his wrists and feet. And after hanging by these nails for hours, they plunged a spear into his side. I can't think of any way for Jesus to have survived this. To believe this theory, you also have to believe that Jesus, who was near death, then escaped a sealed tomb and convinced his disciples that despite being barely alive, that he was the glorious conqueror of death. The second option is the wrong tomb theory. This is championed by Professor Kersop Lake, who proposes that the disciples who were distressed and scared after the death of Jesus simply went to the wrong tomb, found this tomb empty, and assumed that Jesus rose from the dead. However, this ultimately doesn't actually explain the empty tomb. If the disciples had gone to the wrong tomb, then the Jewish or Roman authorities could simply have gone to the right tomb and paraded Jesus' body around the city. This theory also doesn't explain how the risen Jesus appeared 12 different times to over 500 witnesses, many of whom the New Testament explicitly names, including Thomas the skeptic, James the unbelieving brother of Jesus, and Saul of Tarsus, the man who wanted all Christians dead. Thus, again, this theory fails to account for all of our facts. And so we head to option three, the hallucination theory. Since our previous option didn't account for the appearances of Jesus, some have combined it with the idea that the disciples all shared a hallucination of a risen Jesus, so that they sincerely thought that he had risen from the dead. Again, there are numerous fatal flaws with this theory too. First, there is no evidence in medical literature of a shared hallucination, ever. Clinical psychologist Gary Sibsey writes this, I have surveyed the professional literature 
written by psychologists, psychiatrists, and other relevant healthcare professionals over the past two decades and have yet to find a single documented case of a group hallucination. Shared hallucinations are only a thing in movies. They don't actually happen in real life. Second, hallucinations still do not explain the empty tomb. Even if 500 witnesses did have the first ever shared hallucination at over a dozen different times, then why didn't the Jewish or the Roman authorities simply parade Jesus' body around the city? That would have ended Christianity once and for all, and they would have loved to do so, but they could not because the tomb really was empty. Option four is the stolen body theory, and this is literally the oldest excuse in the book. Let me read from Matthew 28 for you. Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you were to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now, hopefully you can already see the flaw in this theory, which is the guards claim to have fallen asleep, but then also claim to know the identity of the people who stole the body. Now, while this story from the guards is very unlikely, it does prove one thing for us. It proves that the tomb of Jesus really was empty, Otherwise, you would not need to make up a story like this. There is also one more major flaw with this theory. It implies that all the New Testament authors are liars. This seems unlikely given that almost all of the original disciples of Jesus were killed for the claim that they had seen, heard, and touched the risen Lord Jesus. And all of them could have saved themselves by simply denying this. People will die for something they believe is true, but they won't die for something they know isn't true. This is actually how some of the original apostles died, according to Christian tradition. The apostle Peter was crucified upside down in Rome for believing Jesus rose from the dead. The apostle Andrew, who was Peter's brother, was crucified by the governor of Western Greece when Andrew refused to deny his faith in the resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle John was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching that Jesus rose from the dead, and he later died on that island. The Apostle James, who was John's brother, was killed by Herod in the very first bout of persecution against Christians, and you can read Acts chapter 12 for that story. The Apostle Thomas who initially doubted the resurrection, was stabbed with a spear while preaching about the resurrection of Jesus in India. James, the brother of Jesus himself, was killed in Jerusalem by the Jewish leaders for refusing to deny the resurrection of Jesus. Finally, the Apostle Paul was executed in Rome for being a believer of Jesus rising from the dead. I'll say it again. People will die for something they believe is true, but they won't die for something that they know is not true. Which leads us to option five, the resurrection theory. This is actually the only theory that perfectly explains our three facts. Jesus was killed, later his tomb was empty, and then his followers really did see him after his crucifixion. We also have more literary evidence for this than any other theory. 
Tom Wright says this, The resurrection of Jesus does in fact provide a sufficient explanation for the empty tomb and the meetings with Jesus. Having examined all the other possible options I've read about anywhere in literature, I also think it's a necessary explanation. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is a necessary explanation to account for the historical facts we have. There is no other theory that even comes close in his explanatory power. And without this, there is an empty tomb-sized hole in history. And so, the resurrection of Jesus, if true, proves a divine miracle which points directly and clearly towards the existence of the Christian God. Evidence number five, personal witness and testimony. My final piece of evidence for God's existence is every Christian listening to this episode. There are billions of Christians around the world right now who have experienced God and would testify to that. We as Christians have seen God active in changing hearts and attitudes. We've seen God active in intervening for us and our loved ones in times of need. The historical witness of billions of Christians is a strong thing to appeal to. Personally, I have had many experiences that have convinced me that God is real. You see, when I finished high school, I realized I only knew about God up here. I'm pointing to my head for all of those who aren't on YouTube. And so I set out to find God and he found me. The Bible itself makes it clear that God is not just meant to be a concept, but actually wants a relationship with us. And this relationship will look different for every person. But when I hear stories of God at work in people's lives in different ways, this is what I find most convincing, that God is real. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 is one of my favorite Bible verses. And in it, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This verse is saying that whoever welcomes Jesus into their life will experience a close personal fellowship with him. Thus, I'm encouraged that Jesus is standing knocking on so many hearts today and many have accepted him in and those are the stories that I love to hear. If you don't know Jesus, please research the arguments I've presented. I find them very convincing, but also delve into what God has to say through his word in the Bible. Read and pray and see what happens, because my God is a God who can be personally experienced in the here and the now. Ask those Christians around you to share of his goodness and his activity in their lives, because ultimately, when it comes to evangelism and apologetics, it is our good God who does the work. I'll end by again plugging this book, Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig, or investigate his online ministry of the exact same name. Every argument I've presented today, Craig also covers in this book. Otherwise, I'd love to encourage you to subscribe and follow the Expert PK Newbie podcast on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and the podcast streaming platform of your choice. Leave us a comment to let us know your thoughts. Send this to a friend to stimulate discussion on this topic. And if you would be at all interested in financially supporting us, check out our Patreon. Otherwise, let me close in prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that faith is not a rejoicing in the absence of evidence, but a response to evidence. I pray that your spirit would be working in the hearts and the minds of everyone who has listened to this episode, convincing them of the truth. May all of our listeners hear the distinct knocking you are doing in their hearts. Amen. Bye. See you next time. 
Bye. A Mustard Seed Creative Production.